Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. It's been a while since Spike Lee has commanded the film stage in the same way he used to, but with his latest film, Black Klansman, the veteran filmmaker finds another prime opportunity to shine a light on American history and hold up a mirror to the country. Black Klansman is based on the incredible but true story of a black Colorado detective who went undercover with the Ku Klux Klan. It's the cover story in our current issue of Film Comment, which also includes an interview with Spike Lee. But there's plenty more to say about the career of this American original. For this episode, I was joined by the author of our cover story. Hi, I'm Teo Bugby. I'm a writer, and recently I'm a union organizer for the Writers Guild. And uh, my name is Ashley Clark. I'm the senior programmer of cinema at BAM in Brooklyn and a long-time contributor to Film Comment. Here's our conversation. So this is a movie that I saw at Cannes, which is a strange place to see like a deeply American film and just a really um, challenging film. Uh, and it was well-received there, and the, but it was strange sitting there with an audience of like mostly you know Europeans watching it and hearing them laugh at jokes that... I felt like maybe uncomfortable to hear non-Americans laugh, <laughs> laugh at. Maybe you know what, what kind of laugh points I'm talking about. Um, but yeah, Tao, maybe you can just sort of start, uh, expand a bit about you know what what struck you about the film and, and, and what, what you went into with your essay. Sure. Um, so this is a movie that's based on a true story. It's based on the memoirs by Ron Stallworth, who is the name of also the protagonist of the movie. And... He was a police officer in Colorado Springs and was uh, doing an undercover sting on the KKK as a black police officer in the 1970s. And so I think when films deal with history, there tends to be a sort of either hagiographic or... uh, a sort of um, sincerity dealing with the past. Um, And what's interesting about this movie is that it falls so completely into sort of like the generic traditions of cop movies. You know, it it resembles more like a, a Spike Lee version of like a Starsky and Hutch um, than sort of a straight political historical film. Um, And I was really interested in sort of that play with genre. And it really made me go back and think about how Spike Lee's other films relate to sort of the histories of um, especially Hollywood filmmaking and the histories of Hollywood genre filmmaking. Yeah. um, And it's, I suppose it's worth fleshing out a little bit more how, how the film operates because Obviously, it has based on a true story. It's an it's an absurd story, but it does happen to be true. It feels perhaps like the kind of thing that Spike Lee might have made up, <laughs> um, which right. is which is why I think the material suits. Yeah. Um, when it was announced, there were many Twitter wags who assumed that the film would be some kind of Clayton Bigsby, black, the blind black white supremacist from Dave Chappelle. <laughs> Um, kind of type deal going on and people said oh Spike Lee's ripping off Dave Chappelle but in fact there's two cops one played by John David Washington um, who's excellent in this film Denzel Washington's son um, and Adam Driver 
a Jewish cop, and between the two of them, they do a, a kind of a, one, one plays. One is the kind of physical manifestation of Ron Stallworth, which is Adam Driver, and uh, John David Washington is the vocal manifestation because you obviously couldn't have a a black guy going in. So it's just worth kind of laying out the the ground of how the film works. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the the tone of it, Nick, you mentioned up top, the, the comedy. I'd be interested to hear you talk a bit more about how some of those uh, reactions were uncomfortable to you. And, and Teo, you obviously mentioned Starsky and Hutch. Mm. This is, as anyone who's familiar with Spike's career to date w- would would know that brought, you know, broadness, a certain cartoonish, um, and not in a pejorative sense necessarily, um, an indulgence of stereotypes to expose and to to pinpoint. He never. He's not really going for subtlety. It's never really been his thing. So I've always been a little wary of critics that take him to task yeah. for a lack of subtlety when he's not. That's never what his stock in trade has been. Right. So I'm just interested to maybe hear both of you talk about the the comedic aspects of it and how those resonated. I I thought the movie was very funny. It it was funny to watch. Uh, I tried when I was watching it to sort of avoid reading anything about it before I saw it, which I think was to the benefit of the movie. Um, I think the opening scene is like really for me, the only one where I was like, what am I going to get into where that was maybe on, it's a, it's a scene where it's sort of uh, Alec Baldwin um, comes out and like is doing like a PowerPoint presentation, essentially or a slide presentation of all of the reasons to be a virulent racist. Um, and <laughs> it's just to the side of like 30 Rock Jack, uh, <laughs> you know, his, his sort of like very, very broad comedy. And I wasn't sure at that point if the movie was going to be too into itself for me to find it funny. Um, but once it got into the plot, and once it got into sort of like the propulsiveness of the characters and the story, um, I found that the humor was just sort of built into the narrative. Um, and I don't know, I, I enjoy the sort of, um, like you said, the broadness of Spike Lee. And I enjoy that his his characters have such a cadence to the way that they speak that only sounds like his writing. And so sometimes it can feel like you're you're listening to just different iterations of Spike Lee all talking to each other. But in a movie where the story is so improbable or so, so uh, the story is cartoonish. You know what I mean? It, it suits it. It, it is like a it becomes sort of a very blockbustery yeah. sense of humor in a way that like is deeply satisfying to watch. And a minimalist kind of brutally realistic approach to this wouldn't quite work. It would be, no, it would no, be quite it funny would, yeah, in yeah, its yeah, own yeah. way. <laughs> yeah. And this is the second time uh, consecutively, I believe that Spike has teamed up with a co-writer called Kevin Wilmot. Right. Who's, yeah. uh, who's worked from a script that was written by two other guys, uh, which was adapted from the book. So there is uh, certain similarities in 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 tone with, with Chirac, which ta- which obviously came out a few years ago, which was Spike's um, gun violence on the on the South Side of Chicago musical. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, slash, slash is, Greek comedy. Yeah. Slash Greek comedy. Lysistrata. Lysistrata. Yeah. I mean. That is a whole other <laughs> podcast in and of itself, trying to pass uh, what's going on in that film. But again, I think it's just another example of taking what are on what on paper look like very serious and are incredibly serious issues and filtering through them, f- filtering them through his own fairly unique 
sensibility, which recurs in in the dialogue, but also in a lot of the the the, the framing and the kind of some very strange transitions and editing choices yeah. and scenes that tend seem to kind of go on and just on and on and on and and then so abruptly will stop when you're not expecting them to uh, of kind of myriad characters in and out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's just, there's a lot going on here. I'm happy yeah. that you brought up sort of the previous iterations of this story that had been in development because I thought it was really interesting that this was also sort of the original project originated with Jordan Peele um, and the uh, produ- producing team behind Get Out. And I think that they're in the same way that that is sort of like a satire that, I mean, that is a very straightforward satire. I think that that sort of sketchiness makes it into this movie where there's like a a feeling that you're watching almost like a lost skit from Key and Peele, but like with Spike Lee directing it. Yeah. Um, There's there's a long history of Lee and Tarantino being spoken of in the same breath which would not be music to either of their ears I suspect <laughs> but there was a scene in uh, Django Unchained when Jonah Hill leads a mob of yeah. besheeted uh, Klansmen right. on horseback and you know we could get into a big conversation about authorship and who gets to tell what stories about America's history but tonally that scene where we are absolutely meant to be laughing at the, the, the ridiculousness of the Klan's racism like bellowing with laughter at how stupid these people are. Yeah. That certainly translates to in, yeah. in in Klansman as well. And I was just wondering if Nick, like when you talked about seeing it at Cannes with a yeah. bunch of like with lots of non-Americans, yeah. um, w- whether you got a sense that people were picking up on the particular comedic satiric tone of this. Yeah, I mean, I I don't you know I'm I don't want to I don't want to take away from from critics that might have been understanding it in ways that I I wasn't understanding it. Um, you're getting it wrong. Yeah, you're getting it wrong. Yeah, if you're laughing now, that's wrong. Um, no, it was just it, I think that more spoke to my feeling invested in it because it was American history and the movie is for me in many ways like really kind of shockingly straightforward. You know, Teo, as you were, as you were saying, as as a genre film hitting certain beats, like it's it's almost like a sitcom also set up just you know what happened you know what happens if you put you know and and it, and just how it kind of plays that out pretty patiently uh just going going through the beats on, on that um and the whole movie though it's it seems like it's just a, a movement towards setting you up with this crashing into re, you know reality at the end where you realize that all this stuff you've been laughing about or laughing at or laughing with at times people's experience just becomes like crushingly real at the end and no longer feels like a joke. And that's ordinarily a kind of movement maybe that I, I might I might find kind of, you know, simplistic because it's about how every other, you know, real life you know, uh, you know, story based on a true story ends. You have the photos of the people who were in it and that it always feels like they're kind of milking you for sympathy <laughs> at the end. Or like, you know, the, the other big classic one almost exactly 15 years ago is the Dogville mm-hmm. ending where they he does that like ultra like Brechtian sort of village. And then at the end plays, just in case you don't get it, plays young Americans over, you know, photos of, you know, people in all states of, of, of misery. And but but in in this case, I I don't even think feel like this is a, a spoiler because I feel like it's strong enough. It hit me even more the second time I saw it. But the movie is framed in this in this way that that, that gives it a historical and kind of media context. It 
it it reminds you how how the experience is also very mediated, you know, and opening with that weird Alec Baldwin thing. And even before that, with clips from um, Gone with the Wind is actually the very first first clip. And then My Birth of a Nation is also yeah. uh, referenced quite heavily. Yeah. It kind of segues into a film history class yeah. via the mouthpiece of, of one of the characters at one point. Yeah. My big unsolved mystery of this movie, actually, this is not to the point that we're talking about, but it's in that Gone with the Wind clip. Oh, yeah. uh, Vivian Lee's voice is replaced by another actor in like a way where I don't know why that happened. Mm. Where like I wonder if it was like permissions, but it's something where if you've seen the movie or if you if you recognize the image mm. and recognize sort of the whole... I mean, the sound being a part of the image. Uh, I just remember being like, is this, is this the joke? <laughs> is <laughs> right. this a joke? Okay, like Putney Swope. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Arnold Johnson's voice. I mean, just to speak to that, that detail, when I, when I interviewed him, I guess I'll be putting the full version online at some point, he did single that out and he was very proud that this was the, I don't remember exactly what it was, but he, he made it sound like this is a very, very rare instance of being allowed to use a clip from that film in, in a fiction film. But maybe there was some sort of restriction that he couldn't couldn't use it all. Um, I'm not sure. But it's just, I mean, I'm curious how each of you reacted to opening with that clip, because I have to say, when I saw that, and it's, it's you know, the, um, you know, just this kind of the pan over all the Confederate wounded, um, which then ends up ends with a close-up on, on the Confederate flag. I watched that and I saw all the wounded and I don't know, call me inhuman, but my immediate reaction was, wow, who, who cares? I don't know, that was my reaction. Like I was like, all these, this is gonna make me really popular for about half of our viewership, listenership. But to I, the comment section. The comment section. <laughs> to you, you can just hear people rushing to it. But in a sense, that's, I guess maybe it was part of knowing what the movie was to come already. I, I saw that and I was like, yeah, sorry, wrong side of history. And the film being on the wrong side of history or which the just which just, side are you coming down on? The the scene of the wounded and the idea that we you know, even in this clip that we we might feel for them. And I guess in a level you do, but also there was such when it's isolated like that, there's just such a you end up being tuned into the grandeur of it and and the, and this self-importance of it, um which sounds horrible, I know, but somehow by isolating that I can't help but wonder if he kind of meant to to say that like taken out of context there's this this kind of like icon of american film history american film culture still like highest grossing film of all time probably will never be beat you know for for, for that um when was the subject of controversy a few years ago when um mm. i think there was a piece doing the rounds that suggested mm. that this this film should be like retired Shelved, yeah. yeah, and shelved, I don't, and don't you know? Yeah. let's not even engage with it. Yeah, which and I think it's crazy. And I don't believe that, but it was, it was, it was, but it was, I, I, it was weird to 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 watch that and start with that because it just starts. I guess it depends on how that that clip cues you. For me, it cued immediately my skepticism. Right. He, he activated my skepticism by showing me that clip, knowing the movie that was to come. Yeah, I don't know. I think I ag- agree to to a degree because I think actually my. My feeling when watching that clip is that, you know, he, he's done that, that, that idea of recalling film history is a huge part of his, his filmography. Um, but there, it has worked better in some cases than others. You know, like if I think about one of my favorite scenes in any of his movies, um, 
is in Bamboozled when when the tape of all of the blackface films plays. You know, like that's like an incredibly moving scene. And it's filled because it's filled partially with movies that I, I can't recognize, that I can't put a name to. And so part of it is, is anonymous, but then part of it is Fred Astaire and Bing, Bing Crosby and like huge names and recognizable films and things that like really cue you to how when you're you're encountering these things in film history, they seem not normal exactly, but like you don't register them as being as abhorrent as they are because they're so encased in their own context. Um, and so to me, it it's just a less, uh, because it's the grand the grand film of, you know, the, of 1939. And there is already so much discourse about it. There is already so much discussion. It like, it's not as specific, you know what I mean? So it's, it's not as, uh, I think you just c carry more into it than it being specific to that film, just specific to Black Klansman. It's interesting that he picks that particular moment as well. There are, you know, 17 hours worth of Gone with the Wind that he could have chosen from. Um, <laughs> but I think ultimately it's a fairly radical act from a filmmaker who's done this before to, to acknowledge the primacy of extant media um, and, and its power to, to shape perceptions. You know, he's, he's diverted from his own, his own material to start with something else as a framing device, which I think is quite radical. Um, it's not always other films. In Malcolm X, he begins with the footage of the, the Rodney King beating in LA. So immediately he's up front in a work that bears his signature, acknowledging the primacy of a work that was not created by him to frame an, an influence, you know, your thought and how you perceive the narrative. Well, I think that's really interesting and, and something that he does that, that's, that's quite radical. Um, in terms of uh, Malcolm X is a good example because Rod the Rodney King beating had just happened. You know, it was a decision taken presumably on the spot. It was 91, um, I believe. And the film Malcolm X came out in 92. This film is dated August the 10th, 2018. There might be more probitous times to release the film, but it, he's decided to release it a year to the day of what happened in Charlottesville. Yeah. Um, and it's again, it's not too much of a spoiler to um, to mention that that's explicitly referenced in the text. So, you know, one of the cliches that comes along often when we when we're working in film criticism is timely. This film is timely, such and such, as though certain things like racism in America haven't always been a problem. <laughs> you um, can peg it to anything. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a think right. piece week. But um, Spike Lee absolutely runs the risk of making himself look very on the nose or heavy-handed by allying the text of his work so closely to the moment within which it's made, which is why I think more than any other filmmaker, um, his films become such fascinating documents of times yeah. um, as the years progress. And to look back on, on the films um, that were made in such an of-the-moment fashion, um, yeah. I think is really interesting. It's interesting yeah. to hear you say that because I think that I feel that way as well, but I also feel like Spike Lee himself has become at different times more or less of the times. You know what I mean? Where, for example, watching She's Gotta Have It in, you know, the original film, that feels like it's like so uh, a part of its 
a part of its culture, a part of like the city. I mean, I wasn't alive in 1987. That's a spoiler, but, um, <laughs> but no, but it, it, there's, there's a sense of contemporary, contemporaneous, um, energy. Whereas if you watch, she's got to have it, the television series, I mean, I found she's got to have it, the television series mesmerizing, but it's because it feels so out of it, out of the present where it's a, it's a, it's a show that is directly about the moment and is directly about, you know, how young artists are living, you know, what's life like in Brooklyn now, you know, what kind of relationships people are having, but Spike's voice is so present in it, in every moment of it, that even though you're watching people who are supposedly representative of the now, they feel like his representation of the now, which isn't necessarily like if you were meeting Anola Darling in 2017, 2018, um, I don't know that she would speak in Spike Lee's voice. Um, and that can be, I think, something that can be alienating or uh, it can be really exciting and interesting because if you build a relationship with him as a viewer over time and like over the films that he's made, it is kind of exciting to see just like, where's, how is he reacting? You know, like how is he reacting to Trump? Like in this movie, there are, he like can't help himself in a way from directly referencing things, you know, like um, David Duke plays a, a large part of the plot in this movie. Played by? Played by Topher Grace. <laughs> With that 70s show. Yeah, very. Pretty inspired, I have to say. It is very good. Uh, he's very, uh, I don't know, squirrely. Oily. Yeah. Yeah. He, he is, but he's all, but also just so callow, which just also seems so right. You know, like that, that, that the loudest and the worst would actually also just be kind of unremarkable and, and just total tool. Mild, you know? bland. Um, yeah. Nice Dutch angles to capture Topher Grace as well yeah, as, as David true. Duke, yeah, which is a style, a kind of stylistic callback. You yeah. know, there are these um, aesthetic trappings that that certainly call back to to a lot of his work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and I, I guess to, speaking to your point, the sheer volume of, of work that Spike Lee has made in various mediums. You know, the idea that he's or, you know shooting series two of She's Got to Have It, but he's been make, constantly making. Um, documentaries, commercial work, feature films. I mean, I, I mean, it's this film ha, is being ta obviously he won, it won the Grand Prix at Cannes, um, and it's the biggest, widest release he's had for a while. Um, I think probably since Inside Man. Yes, I was about to say, don't quote me on that, but this is being recorded. <laughs> nothing I can do about that. Um, but it does feel in some ways like a comeback and i think that is whether or not you know that's not an aesthetic uh, a value judgment on the films he's made i have a lot of time for the <laughs> the smaller experimental works he's made um yeah. things like red hook summer which mm -hmm. while obviously flawed in some ways i think are really fascinating artistic statements but this certainly does feel like a return to to the big leagues and a relevance which i think has everything to do with Teo, you you know what you spoke about him not being able to resist directly yes attacking trump this kind of archetypal loudmouth new york guy trump you know that's exactly how I taking on another archetypal yeah. you know guy who's not short of a few words not to you know i'm yeah. not, not comparing them in any other way but these are kind of quintessential 
brash New Yorker figures in certain ways, and I think that there's a, there's an interesting locking of horns here. Yeah, I really, actually, it's funny you say that. I really, <laughs> that's how I felt about. It. I was, I was, you know, that he's like rising to the occasion a yeah. little. He, he's like, he's like. Wait a second, you know. I can see Donald Trump getting upset by this movie. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> whether well, that was the metric we want to judge it by, but right, because <laughs> it's so direct. It's it's Very absolutely direct. direct. And and I, yeah. I I alluded earlier to the the idea that often with with Spike, it's his work is it is a pejorative when people speak of his work as being on the nose or or obvious. I don't see that as a problem. I think someone needs to do this work to yeah. to, to reach wide audiences to to say things as he sees them. Yeah. No, I, yeah. This is a great example of that. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with, with that. I mean, I've just always found it, I, I've just always so admired him and really just responded to just the catharsis of his work, you know? And for me, you know, I guess maybe just generation, generationally for me, it wasn't do the right thing that did that. I guess I, I just wasn't old enough for it. But for me, it was weirdly probably 25th hour where I thought, this feels like someone's finally talking about, you know, just by even setting it. Cause that's basically. The Is it because making. you kind of look like Edward Norton? Oh. <laughs> oh no. I don't know. The name calling would start. I didn't expect it to come from that, that angle. Um, <laughs> frankly, I just saw myself in the movie and I really responded to that. Um, this is interesting because now people listen to the podcast will be visualizing um, Edward Norton. Um, Nick's I, just started punching himself in the face, yeah, screaming I'm just in the mirror. Yeah, trying to disfigure myself <laughs> so that I, I, I look a bit more. Uh, oh, actually, and now I'm, he's being taken off to jail. I'm in a I'm in a, a bear suit actually, <laughs> kind of for the podcast. I like that kind of estrangement effect for my for the people who are on the podcast. Um, but uh, yeah, I um, I don't know. I it was, it was just it was just like September because it's hard to remember now that weird the way it was completely ubiquitous, the, the the trauma of it. And yet at the same time, there was just something about it none of us were still talking about or, or, or confronting that it just all immediately felt channeled into, you know, war <laughs> um, and terrorism and, and, and all of all of that kind of reaction. So that film, you know, and then later on the next one, not that I experienced it in, in, in any way whatsoever, but when the levees broke was, which I think is just monumental, work um uh, is is another example of just where he was just like pay attention to this you know is what he with that film you know i'm making this film multiple parts you know i don't i don't care if it's released in theaters um and it's and it's it's just either that movie just took me to pieces and again it was just another thing let's just pay attention to this feel something about this um and i don't know I, it's just for me that's you know you Spike Lee has a grip on my heart, you know, with, with that sort of work. So yeah, when people say it's it's on point or on the nose, I'm like, yeah, because... And, just, and allied you know. to that is a very deliberate craft as well. You know, these, Absolutely. there's yeah. an artistry that, that we need to really acknowledge fully yeah. Yeah. Um, and not just frame Spike Lee as a ideological, you know, this is not Dinesh D'Souza or Steve Bannon making movies, No, you and, know, yeah. with a ham fist. This is a real, real artist. And already we've been talking about some of the tropes, the aesthetic tropes and, and ideas, whether it's dialogue or, or framing or use of colour that recurs and recurs in his films and, and makes you know from watching one second, uh, one or two frames of a Spike Lee film, you know, you know you're watching him. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think this particular point about him as a, a craftsman and him as, a, as an aesthetic filmmaker um, was something that 
was a real inspiration for the article that I wrote um, because I do think he frequently gets framed as solely political as if he's just yelling into the void in a formless way and I think that that's uh, I mean frequently a racist critique of his films um, but then also that it, it just does a huge disservice to what he does as a filmmaker which is he's a great watcher of movies you know he is deeply he's steeped in film history himself he's got a a really wonderful frame of reference for his own work and so often like what he does is he he you can see sort of where his references come from and then he absorbs them into himself and then projects out what the Spike Lee version of it is going to be um which is why you know he can get away with referencing Gone with the Wind because like he knows what that camera setup is and he can replicate it if he wanted to and I think there are sequences in this movie the the ending scene without spoiling too much being a great example of just his his genuine like his formal mastery his mastery of uh of rhythm and pacing and timing um and to be able to the film I guess we should say ends with a, a scene where a fictionalized version of the Klan is uh, placed up against a montage of uh, documentary footage of, uh, sh- I guess we can say, the the present day. Um, well, Charlottesville. Charlottesville, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you get in that scene the sort of the spiritual power of images that he, he himself finds as a viewer that he from his own love is able to translate onto the screen, you know? Um, And there's a real mastery in that final scene that's really satisfying to watch because you've had a very measured and a very uh, regimented genre film that's come before it that fits into, in a really beautiful way, it fits the beats of what you expect a blockbuster movie to do. You know, it's like, there's the rising action, the climax, the denouement, you know, like there are, um, there are images that stand out that recur. There are like building blocks, the building blocks of cinema. And so then to see him in the montage really disorient the viewer, that mastery of how to orient and then how to make disorientation powerful. That is something that only a master filmmaker could do. And that is an exciting thing to watch from him, you know, to see him sort of go from tonality to atonality, I guess, being a way to put it from, from the concrete to the abstract is exciting. And, and I think it's fun to see him do that with a big budget. And it's fun to see him do that with, with the idea that this movie could conceivably play in a multiplex, you know, that this, as much as I love, um, as much as I love Chirac or I'm fascinated by Chirac, um, that movie had the limitation of sort of playing in art houses. And this is one that's like designed, I think, for a general public. And yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm, I'm, I just think it's, 
Yeah, that's that's part of the structure built into the structure for me. Yeah, is that is is that this is a movie that could play in, in a multiplex, but where it lands, you know, even where it lands in, in two spots. I mean, where where the the main movie lands, that itself it doesn't land in like a reassuring place, even before you see the Charlottesville footage at, at all. You know, it doesn't land in reassuring. Pl- I mean, now we're just like giving up the whole idea of it, any suspense, but you know, the the main character and his and his love interest doesn't land in a reassuring place. It le- lands in like a kind of um, uh, ideological place from the standpoint of one of the characters. Yeah, I mean, for all the for all the the obvious pleasures of the film, like it's it's good to look at. It's mm. an aesthetically pleasing object. It's very well acted. Um, it's very funny. It is, as you say, Nick, riven with with ambiguity and ideological tension. That things that are not easily or, or evidently resolved, and I think that that's a clever trick that that is played at the end of the film in a way that certain artistic decisions that are made would lead you to believe that it is cut and dried, when in fact the 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 action of the film is is left fairly unresolved. And I think yeah. that's a um, some you know it's a film that I I was very keen to go back and watch again. Yeah, I didn't feel like once I'd seen it. The once, and, th- and that's the case for a lot of his films. I think they they do um, reward repeat viewings. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, there's some Spike Lee films where I feel like watching it, you're kind of sparring with him or something, you know. It's and like someone throwing things at yeah. you yeah. sometimes, and you're ducking and yeah. diving, and, and you know, some of it hits you. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I speak from from experience of, of watching Bamboozled many, many more times than is healthy because <laughs> uh, I wrote a, a monograph um, yeah, about well, it a few years ago. Yeah, I mean, how 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 do you see Bamboozled, you know, against this with this this film, especially you know, since they're both movies that so much are playing against. American media representation. Well, there's an aspect of timing to this. I mean, if mm. if Bamboozled had come out today, exactly the same film, I think it'd have a very different um, reaction, which in, in some ways is a banal thing to say. Um, almost all art, if it came out a different <laughs> time, um, would, would have a different response. That said, uh, you know, in my book, I did write a little, I think, I don't know if this, maybe this got edited out, but if Bamboozled had come out in 2008 in a wave of optimism with the election of Obama, I think it would have done even worse <laughs> because a lot of the, right. the, the rhetoric around the film from certain critics and many audience members who stayed away was that we know blackface is bad. Like, we, we know, Spike, you're telling us stuff we already know. We know that racism is bad. This would never happen. And truthfully, some of the stuff that you see in Bamboozled, like not only did it, really end up kind of happening certain things like Rachel Dolezal and mm-hmm. and that rap, I can't remember the rapper's name but the guy who dan- literally danced on the table like Mantan Bobby Schmurder oh. like literally <laughs> dancing on a table in front right. of executives well I mean even the Drake the Drake blackface Drake, photos from well, yes. <laughs> but I mean looking at them it was like it, yeah. this is <laughs> yeah no it's, it's completely insane so you know he, he it was very prescient in many ways um something else that got lost in the discussion of, of bamboozled was was the the formal ingenuity of it of it being I, I believe the first uh, major studio the idea that even a studio bankrolled this film is incredible <laughs> yeah like it's <laughs> unbelievable because it implicates everybody. He's pointing yeah. the finger at literally everybody in this film, including it's, himself in some ways. It's the most vituperative movie I've it's ever seen in my life. Tough. It's <laughs> tough, tough, tough watch. I, I love it. It's one of my absolute favorite films of his. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> it's so it's so surreal and it's so angry. I mean, like the 
I've, I've already brought up the montage in that film as being like one of my all time favorite scenes in any of his films. But like, I think what makes that work so well is that everything that you see in that montage has played out as horror in a way before where you, you watch these, these musical numbers, these like completely banal and chaotic board meetings and all of these, uh, well, and this montage unfolds in such an unhurried way. Right. It's scored to Terence Blanchard's kind of lounge jazz yeah. music. <laughs> it's it's the presentation of it is so cool. Um, in contrast to the the sound and fury of the preceding two hours and fifteen minutes or whatever it is. Right, right, and I think that 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 contrast, um, where you've watched something completely chaotic that your mind, in a way, wants to reject because it's so bitter, you know, it's like sticking at the back of your throat, and then that it all slows down for that final sequence, and everything that you've watched is recontextualized and made into images that are that are banal, that are that are. Um, no less horrifying, no less surreal, but which play as an acknowledgement of how they were once normal. And so everything gets reframed in that moment. And so I think this movie, the Black Klansman, in, in, re in relation to that, is in a way a flip, is in a way a, a reverse, where in Bamboozled you have a chaotic body, <laughs> you know, a chaotic text that then gets recontextualized into, oh, what we perceive as chaotic in the present, it was normal. Um, and in this, in Black Klansman, there's sort of a, a movie that absolutely is ambiguous and, and is wrestling with really thorny ideas. I think especially I would, you know, I, I was really interested in the way that he handles the aspect of this film where the protagonist is a police officer is a black police officer you know like there are questions being asked about the morality of each character's position and about the what they're getting out of what they do and why um and also the relationship between the african-american cop and the jewish cop absolutely the, these things it goes into uh, also very interesting the parallels between right the parallels between oppressed groups but that ambiguity is is placed into sort of a, a a recognizable structure and then scrambled at the end, you know, where it's like you watch the past and it's uh, crystallized and then you watch the present and it's it's made into a jumble. And it's pleasurable in terms of being, you know, as I said before, not nicely shot as opposed to, uh, nicely shot, beautifully scored, as opposed to the way that bamboozled is sh shot on all of these digital cameras, mm -hmm. seemingly edited at, at random, various angles and so so much dissonance. So I, th I really like the point you make about th these being in, in dialogue with each other as a kind of inverse, mm -hmm. but kind of ending up in the same yeah. place, yeah. which is one of extreme discomfort. Yeah. Maybe there's a point where we can just take a break and we'll listen to a little message and be right back. Film Comment Magazine presents a series of onstage conversations, the Film Comment Free Talks. These events happen every month at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Our filmmaker guests have included Paul Schrader, Boots Riley, and Ari Aster. On August 6th, don't miss Crystal Mazel in conversation with Amy Taubin about the new film, Skate Kitchen. For more information about the talks and about subscribing to Film Comment, go to filmcomment.com. And we are back. I thought maybe, you know, it'd be interesting to think about where 
black Klansman fits just into we've we've talked a lot of a lot about earlier movies of uh, Spike Lee's, but I mean, where, where where do each of you find this one falling in? Where does it show him in his career? You know, he still has plenty of movies in him, you know, and and it just this incredible work ethic, perhaps only matched by Woody Allen. But um, <laughs> so maybe he'll be going well into his eighties. But yeah, where where, how, where do you find this fitting into the to the larger career? I suppose. The first film that came into my mind uh, after I watched it was probably Inside Man. And that's not necessarily for any overwhelming textual reasons, but just simply because it felt like Spike, armed with a proper budget, doing a kind of mainstream, really um, well-told narrative that could play to wide audiences with with really good actors. Um, And it did feel like the first time since Inside Man that that I've seen Spike working on that level. Obviously... um, there's an, an irony there in that I think he wanted to do a sequel to Inside Man for a very long time, but even though it yes. was a huge box office hit, he couldn't get the the funding together to do it. And that's yeah. always been a an issue for, for, for him and his work, in contrast to somebody like, let's say, Tarantino, who gets to make, you know, one or two, you know, he gets to make a film on, let's say, shoot a, a 70 mil film and, and stage the whole thing in a cabin. You know, and come back say, every five years and do that in a way that Spike's never been able to do that, to have that luxury. What I wouldn't give to have been there when Spike Lee saw The Hateful Eight. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not going to go into yeah. The Hateful Eight on this on this podcast. But um, yeah, I think the, 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 the Inside Man thing struck me. Well, we've obviously talked about Bamboozled. I think mm-hmm. there is, in terms of being so direct about things that are happening now um, yeah. and, and what is making... Spike Lee very upset. There's an obvious. It's an bamboozled. Is an obvious cousin of this film. Yeah. I think the other um, film that came to mind for me was School Days. Um, again, because I was sort of thinking in this in this way about how Spike Lee takes narratives and then figures out how to play them in sort of the translation of Hollywood genre um, and School Days being his first musical, not by by no means his last. Um, and yeah, so I, I, I thought of that film a lot in the uh, in the structural sense, in the sense of, you know, how do you take a a story, a time in history, a uh, political questions, and then how do you build a a generically recognizable movie around these sort of these issues that don't typically inspire this genre, you know? Um, and yeah, I, I thought, I thought this movie sort of fit into that, into that framework. There's a, uh, connections with do the right thing, obviously, uh, in terms of, uh, packing the frame with references to, contemporary society there's obviously the scene in do the right thing which hasn't dated particularly well um with spike stood in front of a a giant wall uh graffiti that says tawana told the truth which was about uh tawana brawley case which was obviously you know look it up guys um but you know there is that you know something that spike does that not many other filmmakers either feel comfortable or inclined to do, which is to pepper the film textually with, with things that are happening at the very moment, you know, and, and, you know, do the right things, not the only example. There are many instances of that, but this film does that a lot too. This is not, um, 
I, I don't know if I can make a claim that this was an intentional uh, line of dialogue, but the words, sorry to bother you, are in fact spoken by <laughs> Black Klansmen. Do you remember who they're spoken by? They're spoken by, I'm forgetting what the actor's name is, by one of the, the Klansmen, like the, the, when he's gone to investigate where he lives, he knocks on the door and says, sorry to bother you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That, that went over my head. No, I, I mean, I, I just thought that was funny coincidence. But yeah, I mean, it's it it it's it, I mean, it's also a film that's in terms of contemporary references, even in the time period, it just kind of lovingly crafted with the music choices. You know, like I, I mean, it's it's funny that in a, in a in a movie that's going where this movie goes, you can also just have this what I thought was just like a warm and totally delightful bar dancing scene you know oh, um, sure. which which uh, i just i don't know i just love love that that could be there even though it's you know we we kind of later learn what it's bracketed by the actual action that, that it's bracketed by yeah i think the color in this movie too you know like it's fun to see him play around in like the 70s palette it's fun to see him play with that that era of lighting too you know that kind of like milky uh sort of long lens way of filming things you know it's it's yeah it's it's not a time that he spent much much of his filmography exploring and so it's it's fun to see him really dive into it you've got him uh summer of sam which we actually screened at bam very recently set in new york 77 how, how i mean how did you find that movie because i i saw it when it came out and i remember um, even though I was uh, younger and, 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 you know, completely inexperienced then. But uh, no, I don't know. I just remember not really making much of an impact on me. Then. But how, how did you find it now? Watching it back, uh, a couple of things really stood out. One, one was the performance by John Leguizamo, which is extraordinary mm -hmm. central performance, mm -hmm. um, which I think was slightly overlooked. It's an ensemble film. Uh, I think before the, the term toxic masculinity was was coined, this film's an incredible exploration, and often very uncomfortable mm -hmm. exploration of that idea. I think it would be seen as a documentary of toxic masculinity <laughs> if it came out today. Uh -huh. uh, another thing we, we've talked we've we've talked a few times about the budget that, that Spike's been armed with to make mm -hmm. Black Klansman. Um, obviously, ninety nine when this film came out, it was industry standard for films to be shot on thirty five mil. And I think when I first saw it, up, you know, up, up until maybe what, 2004, we also showed White Chicks the other day on, on a 35 mil print, which was absolutely beautiful. Wow. Um, set Twitter a buzz. It absolutely did, which is why I do the job that I do, to set Twitter <laughs> a buzz. But to, um, to actually sit and luxuriate in, 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 in these films, we, we screened it from, from a print. And again, you're seeing the, the, the level of artistry there, the, the work with color and texture um, that, I perhaps took for granted the first time I saw it many, many years ago. And to watch it again, you, you realize anew uh, what level he's working at. Exactly the same thing happened with Jungle Fever, seeing that big. Um, his, collabor his early collaborations with uh, Ernest Dickerson, the cinematographer, yes. um, his first six or seven films, if we count Joe's Bed-Stuy Barbershop, We Cut Heads, his, his early film from 1983, all the way up to Malcolm X. That is one of the most extraordinary creative partnerships. Yeah, um, Speaking of, of color and texture and mood and light, um, watching Jungle Fever um, off a beautiful 35 mil print, it was just mind-boggling. It was just an overwhelming emotional experience yeah. to watch that. And uh, Summer of Sam is obviously a, an ex extremely abrasive film. Um, but it also seems to be an influence on 
things like <laughs> like Mindhunter and and you know it does also it does that procedure there's procedural aspects of it there are uh, you know we talked about Starsky and <laughs> Starsky and Hutch esque nature of of Klansmen. so I think there are some some of that um, slightly cartoonish over the top aspects that, that that link these two films as well. Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, that's a film I should I should revisit. I mean, I, I think when I saw it, it just it it yeah, it did feel cartoonish in a. It felt like this kind of heightened like I don't know amusement park, not not in the like uh, you know throwaway way, but just like very like hyper vivid retelling of a point in history. I mean, at a time in the '90s, you know, when when the '70s were not whatever you want to say coming back or being uh, looked at again and. Uh, so, but yeah, sort of armed with Black Klansman, I kind of want to go back and, and see see how that plays now because he's always putting decades in dialogue, yeah. looks and dialogue, colors and dialogue. Definitely go back and watch it. I mean, there's yeah. a there's a thing that I'd completely forgotten where David Berkowitz, the killer's dog, actually talks <laughs> and yeah. is voiced by John Turturro. <sighs> right, and you're thinking, okay, hang on a minute. <laughs> like again, criticizing this film for being cartoonish or over the top. <laughs> John Turturro plays a serial killer's dog. Right. You know, this is, these are deliberate choices. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I guess speaking to his sort of like B movies, like the the uh, like if we consider this to be like one of one of the movies that's designed to play to a wide audience, then in comparison with a movie that's not necessarily um, sort of in preparation for watching this, I watched a few of his movies that I hadn't seen before, including uh, The Sweet Blood of Jesus, which to me, sorry, I was also thinking about this in relation to the 70s conversation because that's uh, a, um, what would you Re- call it? Reinterpretation yes, of Bill uh, Gunn's Gun Genesis. Yes, but one that, to me at least, is maybe the film of his that least works that I've seen um, or the one that I have the hardest time getting into that I, I find the most impenetrable <laughs> and the least um, formally convincing and maybe it's just that, you know, I also saw Ganja and Hess recently for the first time. And that was such a an overwhelming experience. I felt, found that um, to be so fascinating and so and exciting. Also very opaque and atmospheric. Extremely, yes, absolutely. Which is a clash of sensibility. Absolutely. Mm. And you can see how formally that film is so influential, especially on that sort of like golden age of of early Spike Lee films, you know, the saturation, the intensity of the images, the, the magnificent framing, you know, like there, there is like a real line that you can draw straight back to Ganja and Hess. But that's part of why I think I find the sweet blood of Jesus so strange where it's, it's a reinterpretation of a movie that he clearly loves that sort of like yanks out all of the things that, seemingly have influenced his work thus far all of the things that make that such a an overwhelming experience um this was also his kickstarter movie right so th- it was, this was, it's, film and it's, was exactly it's, and it felt to me like it had been made in a bit of a rush absolutely um like, like i don't think that material is something that you want to speed through it could have done with a little more care and attention i think uh, it does have one of his greatest opening credit sequences as well <laughs> Um, which is something else that, whether or not we get into it, I think there's few, if any, directors who can match Spike Lee's um, 
Marvin. command of, of a credit sequence, you know, he yeah. still sees value in that. Yeah. And I think that's Just really something I really miss. Uh, yeah. Well, like, the, the cold big, the cold opens have, have kind of almost taken over. Mm. Yeah. Which is another thing that's kind of like, like almost like classic cinephile of him, you know, Absolutely. basically, you know, that he appreciates that and these, all these like classic Hollywood devices are all things in his repertoire that he'll draw upon if, if he wants to. Uh, or did you the trigger something? I just wanted, yeah, it did. <laughs> yeah. It did trigger something. And I think there's a real tension between Spike Lee being a black filmmaker, and therefore, um, because of let's be honest, racist stereotypes, him being assumed that he needs to be a truth teller or a documentarian or some kind of realist, Absolutely. simply by virtue of the fact that he's a black filmmaker with an interest in politics, which sits so awkwardly with his absolute cinephilia and love of film as an art and yeah. as, a, as a confection and as a series yep. of beautiful constructed images you know he is a he's a, he loves film he does music you know there's a musical sequence in the new film he is constantly mining the history of cinema for references yeah. and he understands it's fiction he's not an idiot yeah. you know so there is that tension that has always manifested in a lot of criticism about him which has tended to underplay his artistry in favor of him being some kind of political mouthpiece and yeah. from the from the late 80s onwards um he was categorized as an angry black man you mm -hmm. know and that that has really cut colored and, and marked i think his career and and the way that a lot of his work is framed so whenever i'm asked to speak about him i always do bring up the, the artistry let's not have any conversations mm -hmm. about spike lee and not mention the artistry in the way that it's part of the course for someone like kubrick mm. yeah no i mean i mean we're kind of we're converging right there because that's exactly what 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 i was thinking was you know, if you think of people, other 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 directors who you know now are kind of fixtures who came up in the late '80s, early '90s, in you know, I guess let's say largely in like American independent scene, and think of how they're characterized, and uh, you know, just to say, for example, Steven Soderbergh, Todd Haynes, Quentin Tarantino, you know, all making their kind of groundbreaking works in the late '80s or early '90s, or some sort of groundbreaking work for each of them. You know, whether it's Sex Lies a Videotape, you know, Poison slash Safe, um, or you know, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and they're all these grand cinephiles, you know, and that's what they're so immediately identified by. And it it is kind of glaring, you know, uh, when you think how differently Spike Lee is is characterized um, in in that regard. I think. Uh, actually, in preparation for, for this article, and um, it didn't wind up making in, and I, I wish that there there had been sort of a way to keep it, but um, I was thinking of him actually in relation in New York at the Met Breuer. Uh, recently, there was a show of Carrie James Marshall's paintings, um, and Carrie James Marshall is a fine artist um, who's a bit, he's sort of maybe like a generation older than Spike, but he's an artist who takes his, his style is basically, um, it's a version of collage um, where he appropriates classic fine arts styles and then translates them to a present black experience or historical black experience and the paintings the the works of art that he makes reframe both the like sort of classical uh styles and also the history of, of blackness in that they recall the absence of a blackness from an official narrative from a canon um and i was reading an interview 
because I had sort of thought about this in relation to Spike Lee after watching this movie and after sort of thinking about him as a genre filmmaker, I was reading an interview with um, his cinematographer from Crooklyn, whose name I, I cannot Arthur remember. Jason? right Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I, I was reading an interview with him. That's a recent interview where he was talking about pastiche. Um, because he was asked, he's also a fine artist, and he, he also, he was doing an exhibit of his work. And he was asked if he considers his work pastiche. And his response was essentially that the word pastiche is used in a derogatory sense to discredit black artists who do work that acknowledges blackness in historical settings. But if you are, if you are an artist in response to whatever your medium is, the that word denies you your ability to engage with the materials of your own art form you know what i mean it 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 eradicates a piece of uh, a piece of your your sense of artistry um and i think that he it was sort of in his in his words like a defense of the word pastiche yeah. um and i think that there's something to be said for Spike Lee as a stylist being someone who takes styles that are recognizable and riffs upon them, you know, and, and, uh, plays with them and applies himself to them. And that being incredibly fun to watch and incredibly engaging to watch when it's, when it's all working, but that also being part of his formal politics you know what I mean it's not his politics aren't just what characters say they're embedded in the way that he makes his films and if you want to under, understand his his political work you have to engage with their form um, because it is it is an intellectual act to think about films the way that he does yeah and he has you know a form in um, acknowledging and expanding upon visual strategies of other black artists as well, like Romare Bearden and Barclay Hendricks. You know, there's definite visual references. I'm thinking of the street scenes, for example, in Do the Right Thing, when he's working with um, Ernest Dickerson. And you look at the way that these these tableau are structured and, and shot, and you look up Romare Bearden's paintings. You know, there's an obvious link and an obvious reference there. So there's a dialogue going on with, with what's gone before him. Uh, I'm also interested in the recurrence of his signature shot, which is the, the floating dolly shot, which pops up in almost all of his films. Um, where the Including... In, it, will it pop up in Black Klansman? You'll need to, you'll need to uh, wait and see. Did I mention that the film's playing at BAM? From August the 10th. I don't think I did, but anyway. It'll be very fun to watch at BAM. Yeah. It's the best uh, I'm audience I'm duty-bound to, to mention that, that we are going to support this film. That's um, going to be bleeped out. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> a huge long. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, uh, the, the the floating dolly shot where, where you have like one or two characters floating as if unmoored from time and space. And it's a, a camera trick. And I like the way that he keeps going back to that as if the audience is waiting for, for when it's going to come. <laughs> Some, sometimes he drops it straight away, gets it out the way really quickly, like yeah. in Bamboozled. I think it's like the third or fourth shot <laughs> with the Damon Wayans character where it carries none of the emotional weight or heft of the, the iteration in Malcolm X 
where it happens just before he's about to be assassinated mm -hmm. and he yeah. knows that his time is is marked. So I'm interested in he's playing these almost <laughs> Peter Greenaway-esque games <laughs> with, with the audience, like, like placing these these things in quote marks. So right. even when his films are, are rigorous and intellectually and politically serious, he's still playing these aesthetic games and having fun and asking the audience to engage with him as an artist and, and his own creations, which I think is is great. And and his films, even if I have not always enjoyed every single one, uh, other than I would say Old Boy, which was a studio, uh, kind of a studio um, yeah. hire. It was a remake yeah. of, of, yeah, of, yeah, of yeah. Old Boy. I believe there's a director's cut, which is about two and a half hours, which mm. is out there somewhere. Uh, other than Old Boy, which I didn't really get on with at all, I don't think I've ever been bored by a Spike Lee film. Even things that I don't think have been hugely successful, something like She Hate Me, for example, which mm -hmm. uh, Film Society's own Michael Koreski has written uh, an excellent piece over mm -hmm. on yeah. Reverse Shot <laughs> website, uh, uh, The Lone Defense of She Hate Me, <laughs> yeah. um, the gender politics of which are, shall we say, questionable. I mean, the gender politics of many of his films, you know, even Black Klansmen, I think there's a way in which that the love interest character in this movie can become just a mouthpiece for uh, ideas. Played by Laura Harrier. Yes, yeah. yeah. Who, Who's good with what she's able... Right. With the part that she has, she does well. Right. But it's not a particularly strong part. Right. Yeah, um, yeah I think that's... I think that's maybe a, a, a recurring theme in his film, but films are a recurring... Uh, I hesitate to say weak spot. It's just it's a the nature of his his storytelling. You know, his protagonists are often men, um, and so it places women often in a position where they're acting as foils. Um, and I think that happens in the films of many of many wonderful directors. I mean, but yes, uh, yeah. But this even so, there's still something kind of endearing, uh, endearingly ham-fisted about <laughs> um, <laughs> she hate me's treatment of you know what it means to be a lesbian i think the thesis of his film is that lesbians don't really exist <laughs> which <laughs> you know have you seen she hate me i actually haven't no i haven't seen that one it's worth it for the animated sequence of many, you had me at lesbians yeah of, of lots of many uh sperm floating towards the camera each each with the uh ecstatic face of anthony mackie it's one of the uh <laughs> It's one of the moments of his career. But it's really worth watching because it's just so weird. Yeah. And strange. Well, I was going to bring up the ending of Jungle Fever, which is Oh, wow. One oh, of this, the, oh, this is like my favorite subject. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I, I mean, I don't know if I'll ever recover. <laughs> it's, it, it's insane. No. It, yeah, it's just this. It seems like... So, 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 the, so Jungle Fever, it, it's been this kind of two-hour, 20-minute odyssey of various ethnic, sexual, gender, racial conflicts taking place um, across New York. Samuel L. Jackson playing Gator Purify, a crack addict, with his um, father based on Marvin Gaye's father. There's Halle Berry's in there. there I mean, there's whatever you want, this film's got it. <laughs> and just when you think it's finished, there's suddenly what appears to be a camera suspended from like a string, like hundreds of feet in the air, and it just swings downwards. And uh, while this is happening, Wesley Snipes has just um, met a, a young girl on the street who offers him sex in exchange for 
money so she can buy drugs or something. Mm -hmm. And he just screams, no! (laughs) (laughs) And and there's just the the camera swings in from on high and there's this mad freeze frame on his face. Yeah. And and then there's this kind of syrupy Stevie Wonder ballad kicks in afterwards. (laughs) It is mad, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It is. Excuse the blow by blow account there, but <laughs> no. Teo just Worth triggered something. In me there. Yeah, I'm gonna it's, go home and watch it. <laughs> it's so disorienting. I think partly, partly because everything in that movie is so direct. You know what I mean? People are just saying what they think, and it's it is one of those movies where everyone is just voicing a different Spike Lee. Um, and so then when that scene happens, it's like what? <laughs> what? The dissonance is incredible, and that's that's one of the themes I think that characterizes. Spike Lee's mm. work across the board for the last however many 35 years he's been making films mm. it's extraordinary dissonance of yeah. theme and tone and content acting styles everything there's mm. just so much going on in all of them mm. and that's why they're so ripe for um digging into and revisiting I think he's a real one-off yeah no I mean you yeah you can watch watch each film kind of anew you know based upon how you you feel you've changed as a person and the, and the world around you has changed or not changed as, as the case is i turned around on jungle films. fever like the first yeah. time i watched it i didn't really think much of it i you yeah. know I, I think i might have um subconsciously or via osmosis taken on a lot of these criticisms that are very frequent of his well they're messy they're undisciplined they're unfocused he doesn't he needs to he needs to focus yeah. and and maybe when i was younger i kind of took that as gospel and actually, watching it now, you're like, no, fuck that. Like, yeah. the less focused, the better. Like, let's let's go to weird places. And, yeah. and these films really yeah. do that. Well, Jungle yeah. Fever is a great example of, I mean, uh, if you're only watching his films for what characters say, you miss so much. You know what I mean? Because it is so spectacularly beautiful to look at. Um, and his framing in that movie, like, the way that the city is filmed, you know, like the way that sets really become characters, the way that like people are revealed to their surroundings through the mise-en-scene is so beautiful. And the lighting, it's so warm. Like the, the, it's, it's just like a spectacularly filmed movie where people only say the most outrageous, (laughs) you know, like the, the most literalized version of a political thought, you know, each person is, is like sort of, uh, standing their ground with their flag you know and and it's not it's not a criticism it's 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 part of what makes that movie so odd and And he refuses to capitulate to resolution Mm -hmm. which is an impulse um which i think many filmmakers succumb to we need to tie up these loose ends yeah spike lee's a filmmaker that understands i mean i i can't speak for american society i've been here for a few years but i wouldn't dream of speaking on behalf of of americans but he he certainly seems to locate a a, a general dissonance and and an argumentative nature Hmm. um yeah in in the societies that he depicts which is very different as, as a kind of national cinema from what british cinema's like you know there's a gentility there and a and an urge to to resolution and i don't think his films do that at all his films yeah. are very they're very very um heterogeneous you know they re- retain their discrete parts um where even like if in black Klansman, you see that too where it it's each character comes from a different they're all looking at the same thing from a different angle you know he likes taking he likes taking things that are not alike and sort of placing them into a style 
and seeing how they interact with each other. And that's unusual. You know, it's unusual to see that sort of um, fragmentation within something that is simultaneously so formally complete. Yeah. And then that takes us, you know, right up to Black Klansman again and just... I mean, you can almost forget because so much of the movie, it can be kind of seems sort of main, mainstream. And it's, although he immediately corrected me when I, you know, even gestured towards that word when I, inter- when I interviewed him. Um, but I mean, those, those jumping from, you know, a clip from Gone with the Wind to a, you know, simulated archival clip of, of Alec Baldwin as, you know, as a racist demagogue. And then you go into the, the story um, of, uh, you know, Ron Stallworth you can almost forget that that's a pretty weird way to begin a movie, you know, and it's really weird. Yeah. But one that, as he says, at removes, it's putting you at removes. Yeah. 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 You know, yeah. whereas other filmmakers would, would be they protective won't. of their, you know, yeah. the story that they're supposed to be telling. Right. There is multiple frames here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think we're probably winding down uh, here, but uh, it almost seems in the spirit of, of Spike Lee that we, we do stick to our, our kind of usual convention at the end here of just talking about the last film that, that we saw, you can just very briefly, whatever that might be. You want to go first, Taylor? Sure. Last night, I started a new job recently, and so I've been um, very busy, and so I needed to calm down with something that was going to be going to be pleasing and so I watched all about my mother last night which I hadn't seen in years and years and years and which was really really lovely to revisit as as an adult I think I saw it for the first time when I was a teenager um and speaking of great filmmakers of the 80s and 90s who love saturated colors and discrete characters and uh who have a very distinct and outsider perspective on um, national and uh, cultural identity. I think that there's a lot of the things that I love about Spike Lee are things that I also love about Pedro Almodovar. Um, and so it was a, it was a real, a real pleasure, uh, a real pr- pleasure 2 a.m. viewing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I sat down with the uh, Criterion Eclipse uh, Chantal Ackerman in New York box set. I sat and watched uh, La Chambre, Hotel Monterey and News from Home back to back and was just hanging on every frame and every rule that is imposed by the strict camera work and, and framing and then just dramatically shaken whenever each rule was broken, yeah. uh, it, particularly in, in La Chambre when the, uh, this is just uh, a st- essentially a still life of, of Chantal Ackerman in a hotel room with the camera rotating 360 degrees and every time it comes back around she's in a slightly different spot and then suddenly at some point after maybe six or seven minutes the camera just goes the other way and I nearly jumped out of my seat <laughs> so it, it really is yeah. uh, a cinema uh, of of absolute and utter rigor and uh, concentration and it really repays yeah. uh, the, the 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 concentration and effort that you put into it and uh, news from home is just I've seen it before but it's just an incredible piece of work uh, I think rather than say what I actually saw, I'm just going to pretend I saw News from Home again. <laughs> One of my absolute favorites. I, I could just expire while watching the the shot on the ferry. Oh, um, on that note. On that note. On the note of my imminent expiration. Um, Ashlyn Teo, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. been listening to the Film Comet Podcast with music by Greg Einge. 
You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comment. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. <laughs>